All right, well, good afternoon. I think that's what it is. I've been debating for the last five minutes. Is it afternoon or evening? Um, how many of you say it's afternoon? Nice. How many of you say it's good evening? Okay, cool. Good whatever it may be to all of you. Um, yeah. It's good to see you all um, at 4.30. And uh, I wanted to make sure you knew... Um, Handouts are available, uh, so we have plenty of those. We have some up front. Is anyone is anyone in need of a handout? Because we have lots of helpful people who like to hand out things. I see Nevin grabbing some. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, on behalf of the elders, I want to thank you because we know that um, this takes a lot of effort on a Sunday afternoon to come out. Um, for those of you who are watching at home, wherever... You may be looking, um, thank you, and those who will watch later. But we just really appreciate, uh, even ahead of time, you making the effort to do this. Um, we know that it takes effort to do this, but we do believe it will be worth it. And we are excited for what the Lord's uh, going to do in us as we work through this material together over the course of the next few weeks, and then wherever that goes beyond there. Um, so I have a note here to say, make sure you pick up a handout. That's a good place for you to take notes. We'll be walking through uh, material. Feel free to take notes or just listen. Um, we won't be opening up things for questions this week or next week, but that doesn't mean that we don't want your questions and don't want your feedback. Um, on our third week, we'll be having a Q&A panel with all of the elders. And so um, we've all got haircuts scheduled before then and things like that just to Get ready for it. It'll be cool. But uh, on the third week, we'll be doing that. And that'll be a great time to interact on questions together. But in the meantime, um, there are a few ways we can be talking about this and be getting your feedback. One is we've scheduled this in the evenings for a few reasons. One is so all of our Sunday school teachers can join us. Uh, The other is so that we could have snacks afterwards and fellowship together. Um, Part of that is just being able to see each other and have embodied experience together. Part of that is elders will be around, and uh, if you have questions or input or things that should be you'd like to see addressed, feel free to let us know those things. So that's one venue for questions and feedback. The other is there on your handout. You'll notice at the top, um, you can go to grcbible.org slash survey, and that's a link to the survey that we sent out. Um, survey could sound super official. Uh, It's already been helpful to us in thinking through what we're going to be teaching, but it's an ongoing way that you could submit other things that you'd like to see addressed or questions that you have. And what's nice about it for us is it keeps it all kind of in one place. Um, If you submit feedback to us, we we try and all look at that as elders, but that does put it all in one place and so saves a few clicks um, for us. So Uh, so those are some kind of housekeeping things just as we begin. Um, Before we dive in, I thought it would be good to pray, and so I'd like to, I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll walk through the material you see there on your handout in front of you. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together uh, to consider the wonder of the salvation you've given us and the ways we're enabled to worship you as brothers and sisters in Christ We bow before you this evening and we ask that according to the riches of your glory, you would strengthen us with power uh, through your spirit and our inner being so that we could be rooted and grounded in love and that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, 
and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we could be filled with all of the fullness of God. We ask that in this, as we consider these things from your word, that you would do more abundantly than we could ask or think according to that power that's at work within us, and that all this would be for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so uh, I thought it would be helpful to start by talking about what these meetings are about. And so hopefully this isn't um, a surprise, just as we've been announcing things and emails have gone out, but just for the sake of clarity, make sure we're all on the same page. As we've been sharing, the elders have been discussing the topic of women's participation in the worship service. And we believe that we should move as a church to, a, to better reflecting God's complementarian design in our worship service by the involvement of women in various functions that have previously not been open to them. It's kind of the mouthful summary of what we're presenting there. Um, I was listening to something and it said, clarity is kind. And I thought, oh, that's such an interesting thing to say, that being clear is actually a really kind thing to do for people. And as one who can tend not to be clear and just to say lots of words, um, we'd like to be really clear right up front and show you how we got here. And one of the things to be clear about is what we are not proposing. I have underlined and italicized not. I wanted to make sure... We all hear that word because sometimes if it slips through our ears, then it can get really uh, unsettling. What we're not proposing is that women would serve as elders or that women would preach at GBC. Those are things that we're not proposing. Um, It can be helpful to define a few terms. One is that we are a complementarian church. And so... um, some of you may be familiar with that term. Others of you may not be. Complementarian means this. This is a definition that's given of it. The position toward gender roles in the church that argues men and women were created to serve the church and each other in different but complementary ministry capacities and that some leadership roles are intended only for men, such as pastor or elder. So that, that's the definition of complementarian, and really you could boil it down to um, male eldering, male pastoring. Um, another term that is helpful to know that we're not proposing that we become uh, is the term egalitarian. Egalitarian, And part of the reason I'm defining these terms is I may be using them throughout the teaching, and as you study the topic, it's just helpful to know these, these handles. Egalitarian could be described as the position that men and women are equally capable of serving in the church in all capacities and that their participation should not be limited by gender. Then it goes on in the definition to say, for example, an egalitarian would argue that both men and women should be ordained to the pastorate. Um, So hopefully you see those differences there. We are committed to remaining a complementarian church, and the reason for that is because we see it as God's design in Scripture. We believe that the Bible teaches that only qualified men, recognized and ordained by the congregation, can serve as elders, and this is spelled out in our Constitution. Um, it's, It's there in our documents. It says, 
Elders shall be men called of God who are qualified according to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 6 through 9, and 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3. And so um, that is what we are not proposing is that we are shifting to becoming an egalitarian church or changing our complementarian conviction uh, that we've had since the church was started. Here's what we would like you to consider as we journey through this together. And tonight's really just starting a conversation about this. Um, What we would like to consider is that the concept of complementarity, which is emphasizing each other's qualities, it requires women to be fully equipped as fellow workers and ministering alongside men. And so we see a, a more robust picture of this in Scripture than what our current practice is showing. We believe that the scriptures teach that having men and women's voices in the worship service is to be expected, and it's a beautiful biblical demonstration of how God has designed us to function as co-laborers together in Christ. And that the major distinction of what someone can and cannot do up front in the worship service, the main is ordination of is that person an elder, not the distinction of what gender is that person? Uh, so that's, that's kind of the shift that we are talking about. Now, one thing that may go without saying in all of this is um, just as we seek to do in our current practice, not everyone will necessarily serve in this way. And there are questions of character and questions of ability that need to be considered with what happens during a worship service, whether you're male or female. Um, So we're not just saying anyone will do this and we're throwing all of that out the window. Um, Here's what will remain the same. Um, The elders will oversee the worship service. Uh, The elders will call the church to worship. Doing the call to worship is something that the elders do. Elders will preach the word. Now, occasionally we have people who are non-ordained or non-elders who may be training for that role or have that role in other churches who do that in our church. So we can talk about qualifications for that. But overall, the elders are the ones who preach the word. Elders are the ones who administer the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And elders are the ones who close the service, and we do so with a benediction. So, None of that's changing, and in fact, as we've studied this together, we've become even more convinced from Scripture of the elders doing these things and the role that they have in all of that. But um, here's what we're considering changing. Hear those words carefully, too. Considering changing. None of this is set in stone. None of this is a done deal, but we're laying out for you what we've come to see from Scripture and what we've been thinking about and are bringing to your attention. So, with the exception of those responsibilities that I just mentioned, non-ordained men and women with the required maturity and gifting, again, there's some qualifications to that, um, we believe they both should have a visible and vocal role in the worship service. And so what can be considered is uh, doing welcome and announcements. That's something that we've shifted to and are, are currently doing. Um, reading scripture in the worship service, praying in the worship service. And we will talk more about 
there's more to say about prayers and what's a pastoral prayer and what are various types of prayers. So there's more that can be said there, but women praying during the service is definitely something uh, we believe uh, we should shift to. Also, leading singing. Um, there, there are some things that happen, but we think that role could be bigger. Uh, distributing the Lord's Supper. In our current church practice, the elders are not the ones who actually distribute the elements. If you're newer to GBC, you say, distribute what? We pick those things up as we come in here and get them confused. Um, it was our practice before, and um, we may go back to that in the future, and so we want to be thinking about that. So women could be distributing the elements. And then serving as usher, greeter, and security. I want to pause there for a moment because uh, we have a variety of people who have been here for various durations, and maybe you've never applied to be an usher. Um, But one of the things that's helpful to know is um, being an usher has been a position reserved for men at GBC. And part of the reason for that was a concern that a woman might exercise authority over a man in performing ushering duties like helping a man find a seat. So that's where we're coming from. Um, so that's why usher is listed up there. We, had the, we have the position of greeter, which has been open to men and women, and part of it was to, to deal with what I just spoke about, uh, and then also security. And then finally, um, give testimony. This is something we don't do a lot in the worship service, sometimes before a baptism, and and men and women do that already. Um, You could see something like a missions report or a ministry report that um, men or women could do in various situations. So those are the things that we're considering, and we just wanted to clearly lay that out. Now, how did we get here? How did you get here at 4.30 uh, on October 15th? Well, um, Several have asked in the survey already why we are considering this now and what has led to our consideration of this change. Um, Some have wondered, have there been women in the church who have been wanting this? Um, I I think one thing that's just helpful to know right up front is the elders were talking this morning, and amongst ourselves, we can't remember a single woman coming to ask us to read scripture or pray in the service uh, up to this point. That hasn't been what's been happening that's, that's gotten us to this point. Um, instead, this has been a, a long process. Uh, depending how you calculate it, like we've all had our own journeys, but it's been over the last eight to ten years that we've been in process of thinking about these things. Uh, I was telling someone today, nothing happens quickly at GBC, <laughs> and so uh, hopefully you can find that comforting. Um, How did we get here? Looking back, much of this began when we started to realize the unintended harm of how men and women's roles were being portrayed in the church. Um, The Bible speaks about headship and submission in the home and in the church, but we've realized that it was often presented and heard in isolation from what the rest of Scripture says about the quality of women in personhood, in intelligence, in dignity, and how male leadership is primarily understood as a radical call to self-sacrificial love and serving, just as Jesus has done for us. And so as we um, walked through difficult situations where we realized how much harm had been done in the unbalanced nature of that teaching, uh, it really opened our eyes to what can happen when we don't properly emphasize 
the entirety of what Scripture says about something. And what that led to is we did an in-depth, in-depth study of Scripture, and we wrote an explanation of what we found, especially as it pertains to marriage roles. And we did that in, in this book, When Head and Helper Are Hurting. And we've distributed that to the church. If you haven't received a copy, let us know. Um, really, you know, if you think of this as like a class or something, this would be required reading before the class. Because like this distills so much of the foundation on a marriage level and male-female relationships in marriage level that then really um, caused us to rethink some things. And so uh, as we went back to the texts of Scripture, we realized that we had overlooked other things that Scripture said about how men and women are supposed to be relating to one another, not just in marriage, but also in the church more generally. And... um, there are several layers to how we came to see that, and we'll be walking through some of that. But some of that is we saw the significance of how Jesus treated women during his time here on earth. Um, The amazing way that he went against the cultural pressures of his day, cultural and religious pressures of his day, to value and include and teach and be ministered to by women. Um, Jesus' ministry really challenged our ideas as elders of what it looks like for a godly man to interact with women. And so that was part of the process. And then also the New Testament emphasizes this as well. The primary lens through which we relate to one another in the church is not headship and submission, but it's as brothers and sisters. That's what the New Testament lays out. And as Ryan and I were preaching through Philippians, and I remember preaching on Euodia and Syntyche there in chapter 4, and you saw the way Paul valued these women because they labored side by side with him in the gospel. And I realized those were things that had just kind of gone in one ear and out the other. Or in Ephesians, where it calls us to be submitting to one another as brothers and sisters before Paul then moves on to Submission between husband and wife and parent and child and slave and master. Things that had been overlooked. And then, uh, as I'm walking you through this, you may say, but what about, and yeah, that's what we thought too, (laughs) but what about these lingering questions? Doesn't the New Testament say all these things um, that affirm this on the one hand, but then it says these other things that say women are to be silent in church and women are to not have authority over men or a man. And so we were aware of those more limiting passages as we've understood them. And we went back to those passages and have done over years in-depth study of these passages. And we'll be summarizing those the next time that we get together. And we found that they have very relevant, true things to say. We're not jettisoning those or saying that's just cultural or um, a mistake in some way. But they're not saying what we originally thought they were saying. And so uh, we'll be unpacking that. Then we looked around at other conservative, complementarian churches. Um, Some have asked if we've felt pressured by, we've sent out a list of other churches who have similar practice to what we're proposing. And some of you have wondered, has, has that list kind of driven this or made you feel pressure that somehow we're out of step? Um, not at all. 
In fact, that list came about as a double check in the process. And that list is actually one of the most recent things that, that we just did, was we realized that we are not alone in seeing this. If we're alone in seeing something in Scripture, warning bells probably should go off. <laughs> and so instead, we reached out to other like-minded churches and, and found out that many had actually seen this for a long time. And we reached out, we surveyed them, we talked to them about what they did, how they got there. Many have had a similar journey. And one of the things that you'll notice about that list is that it's a wide-ranging list. And that's why we wanted you to see that is it involves Nine Marks churches, which many of you may know Nine Marks ministries, and there's so much commonality between what GBC believes and what Nine Marks believes. Um, some Southern Baptist churches, some non-denominational churches, PCA churches, especially in the, the Western, Western Presbytery. Like, this is accepted within the PCA, and it's not a fringe thing. And that was also very helpful to us. So, how did we get here? Why now? If I were just to summarize that, we have been on a slow, careful journey of becoming convinced of a biblical practice, and we feel we need to share it with you all so we can move there as a church. Um, so that's how did we get here. Then, um, how do we approach this? Um, some of us have been part of a church walking through a change. I could ask for a show of hands, but it might be... Um, dating ourselves. But um, some of you may remember GBC moving from grape juice only to having wine in the Lord's Supper. That was a change that GBC made. Or from hymns only to including contemporary songs in our worship. Some of you um, may have been here for the last 10 years and have seen how we've come to teach more holistically about topics like men and women and marriage and other issues. Um, others of you may not have. Uh, so it's good for all of us to refresh our minds about these things. Because as you can tell, we, we don't propose changes like this very often. Uh, they're relatively few and far between. So how do we go about doing this? Well, let's talk about what we plan to do. We will teach through some material for three weeks. Uh, there's one week off in between and receive feedback and input as we've been um, mentioning. Week one, which is today, is laying a foundation. We're, I'm going to lay a foundation of how we approach it, and then we'll, we'll begin talking about biblical foundations of this. Week two, we will be looking more at key texts. Ryan will be unpacking some of those things next week as we gather together. Then we'll have a week off, then we come back for week three, where it's putting it all together, um, being able to pick up what we haven't had time to cover, talk more about where we're going, and then also have a Q&A time uh, with all the elders. Then we'll give you time to consider this. As I said, none of this is set in stone. There are some things that we think are very clear. There are some practices that need more discussion and where you draw a line on certain things, we're still working through and want to consider wisdom about those things. In the midst of this whole process, we just ask that you be praying about all of this. We are praying and we ask you to be praying. And the reason for that is because I, I want to unpack how we pray we will do this. <laughs> what are we praying for that will take place? How will this happen? I think this is one of the most important things I could say tonight, and I don't have a slide for it because I want you to just hear it. But we are convinced that how we do this is just as important as what we end up doing. How we do this is just as important as what we end up doing. Now, um, 
Don't hear me wrongly, I'm not saying how we do this is more important than what we end up doing. Meaning if we all just love each other and have unity, it doesn't matter what truth we end up at. But what I am saying is this, the what of seeking God's truth in Scripture has to be met with the how of a Christ-likeness, a humility, a love, and honoring one another in doing it. And God is working by his Spirit to build love and unity and Christ-likeness in all of us as we go through this. Um, How you respond to this and how we respond to you in this process is just as important to God as the pursuit of truth in his word. Love and truth must go together. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle or disagree or have things that we need to discuss, but we can do it in a way that outdoes one another in showing honor, the honor that God shows all of us uh, in Christ. And so that how we can be praying that we would do it in that way. There's another thing that's not on your sheet uh, that initially I'd, anyhow, I thought would be good to add into it, I realized. We want to do so um, reformed by the word of God. So if you're someone who's following along and likes to pick points, I think it says one, two, three coming up. This could be zero or 0.5 or whatever you'd like that comes before one, negative three. Um, you're free to do whatever. But it would be reformed by the word of God um, is part of how we'd be doing this. Our church is part of the Reformation tradition. We're going to be celebrating Reformation Day on October 31st. And a Reformation slogan is reformed in our doctrine um, and always reforming. And Bob Godfrey, who's the former president of Westminster Seminary, church historian, theologian, he says this about this reformed and always reforming idea. He says, every generation not only needs to learn again what it means to be reformed in doctrine and practice, but every generation also needs to be about the business of always reforming. We need to be always reforming because we are sinners. We fail to understand and follow God's truth as we ought. We recognize that the reformers were sinners too and did not understand everything perfectly. This is Bob Godfrey saying this, which is pretty amazing if you know uh, what how well Westminster holds to what the Reformers taught. But here's um, a a quote that I think is helpful. So we want always to reform ourselves and the lives of our church by turning again and again and again to the word of God and allow it to reform us. Always reforming does not not mean allowing clever insights into the needs of our present world to change the biblical inheritance we've received from the Reformation. Here it is. It means turning as the Reformers did to the word of God, and allow it to change us. And so we want to consider all of this in a spirit of always reforming according to scripture. So that's kind of prolegomena. Now, um, more of how we do this. This is a, it's a hot button topic. We understand that we're not proposing something benign, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or something like that. And for some of us, this has been a litmus test issue for churches and their fidelity to scripture. We understand we're coming to this uh, and there's a lot going on there. And so I want us to, we want us to be aware of a few things. The first is to be aware of slippery slopes. When changes are proposed in a church, 
one of the things that often comes up is the danger of slippery slopes. Um, You may say, what is a slippery slope? Other than that looks scary, right? Um, John Frame, who's a Reformed theologian, he summarizes it this way. Um, This is the slippery slope argument. Position A can lead to position B. And so if you take position A, you run the risk of taking position B. Position B is unbiblical. Therefore, position A is also unbiblical. Do you see how that works? Um, position B is clearly wrong, and that where if you do position A, um, then that's wrong as well. The assumption in this is that where you are is that biblical practice and it's right or safe, and to take a step will inevitably lead to error. And so it's better to stay where you are than proceed down into unbiblical practice. An example of how this works um, could be on teachings of Calvinism, right? As I've been thinking about wrestling through this issue as a church, I I thought how many of us have had a journey from what we thought about what Scripture's taught about salvation to coming to understand a more Calvinistic or Reformed or um, understanding God's sovereignty in the whole salvation process. And so hyper-Calvinism is the teaching that evangelism isn't necessary and we just leave that to God and he will just make all the elect believe. And that's an unbiblical doctrine. It's, it's not balanced with what Scripture says. And where slippery slope argumentation can go is that, oh man, I had election on there somewhere. Oh, there it is, thanks. Uh, that we shouldn't, if you preach about election, then you'll end up in hyper-Calvinism. And so you shouldn't preach Calvinistic doctrine. In our situation, it could sound like this egalitarianism is wrong, having men or having women as elders or preachers. Churches that have become egalitarian have had women read scripture, position A. Therefore, reading scripture is wrong or it's unwise and it will lead to egalitarianism. One thing that's interesting to note about slippery slopes is although they are often said when we're having theological or church conversations, The slippery slope reasoning is a logical fallacy. Those of you who follow logic probably saw that with the therefore, like, hey, that doesn't add up, right? Um, The reality is that a slippery slope slopes both ways. The underlying assumption with slippery slopes is usually the picture that I showed before, where there's only one way to slide into error. But the reality is you can unintentionally slide into error in the other direction too. So if we use our Calvinism example, I'm going the wrong way. I'm left-handed. That's why that's happening. I just figured it out. Okay. So if we use our Calvinism example, you know, there's one side you can fall off, which is hyper-Calvinism, but there's also an error on the other side of not explaining God's sovereignty, and that's the error we would call Arminianism. And there's this biblical practice, though, up at the top of that, that's actually speaking well of both God's sovereignty and people's responsibility, but you can fall off in either, either direction. So when it comes to the topic that we're discussing, women's involvement in the worship service, we believe that you can distort the Bible's teaching in one direction, which would be that there are no distinctions between men and women in this, an egalitarian way of viewing that. But it can also go the other direction to distorted distinctions, And one of the distorted distinctions that we see in Scripture would be that men are doing everything 
and that women aren't involved in these things. Um, Not allowing women to do what the Bible says they should be doing is also an error. Um, And sometimes we think it's just better safe than sorry uh, maybe to stay there. Um, There is a biblical practice of what the Bible teaches men and women should do in worship, and we're going to be outlining that as we go. And just for the sake of clarity, as elders, we've come to believe that we're not in line with that better biblical practice, but we're more on a side that has distorted distinctions in limiting too much what women are doing in the service. So our goal is to be aware of the slippery slope on both sides. Um, Instead of being tempted to throw that out as a conversation stopper, which is really how that can often function, oh, slippery slope, and then it just stops the uh, conversation, we want to explore together what the Bible says is clearly wrong in either direction. And so a more helpful way to think about and consider a topic, and especially a topic like this, is by asking something like, are you convinced that the next step is a biblical step? How how do you see that supported in Scripture? What are potential unintended consequences of that step? What are biblical guardrails that keep it from progressing into something unbiblical? Those are helpful questions to explore that we want to discuss together. And so we want to do this aware of slippery slopes. We also want to do so aware of personal experience. None of us comes to any topic without personal experience already shaping our ideas. This isn't bad. (laughs) This is just how it is as creatures who experience things. Um, But it's really important to be aware of our experience and the role that experience plays. Some of us have lived in complementarian settings. Uh, Marriages that we've seen, maybe the home we grew up in, the marriage we presently have, maybe the churches we've been in. We've been a part of that. We've seen it done well. And we're thankful for that. Um, Some of us may be committed to that view of it at great cost, and other people ridicule you for it. And it's been a lifelong um, struggle of, of clinging to that. It may be stretching to explore what may have been overlooked, though, in your experience of that. Just because it worked doesn't mean that it was right or balanced, according to Scripture. Others of us may have been settings where these teachings were misused, either in the church, by leaders, in the home, or both. And it may be very hard and very stretching to think that any of this idea of headship and submission or authority, that any of that could be good. But just because it was distorted and misused doesn't mean that it's all untrue or irrelevant either. Others of you may have never been exposed to this and you're like, I'm hearing these words for the first time and it either sounds good or doesn't sound good to you. So we're all coming to it with a whole variety of experience. And so what is the role of experience? Experience is there to, for us to listen to with curiosity because others' experiences can help us better think through the issue. Other people's experiences can help us see blind spots or imbalances that we may not have considered in our own personal experience uh, as we evaluate what Scripture holistically says. And so experience, it doesn't determine our doctrine. 
just because someone is saying, I experienced it this way or that way and is bringing correction or change, um, it doesn't determine the doctrine, but we consider people's experience as we study what Scripture has to say. Because at the end of the day, the reality is this. God's Word, when it's rightly understood, it's sufficient enough, it's good enough, it's wise enough to understand and speak to everyone's experience and to guide us in biblical practice as we navigate uh, these issues. So we do so aware of personal experience, and then third, we do so aware of cultural pressures. Aware of cultural pressures. I know this is a lot of words. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, One concern people often have with change in the church is that it's being driven by the culture. This is something that you'll often hear when change is proposed. Um, There's a point of truth in this concern. Everything that we do is a part of culture, and we can't escape culture. It is just the air that we breathe. Um, Like experience, we are all profoundly shaped by culture, even as we come to examine what the Bible has to say. But one problem with the way this is phrased is that it assumes that there is just one culture that's influencing us when we're making a decision. And often what's being spoken of as the culture is it's usually speaking of media outlets or Hollywood or secular views that are being mediated to us uh, in life. But there isn't just one culture. There are all kinds of cultures, and they are shaping us in various ways, and we need to be aware of that. Take the issue of how men and women relate to each other in the church. I think what's often meant when we're warned about culture's influence on this issue is the pressure of secular and radical feminism, which is going beyond arguing for things like women's rights to vote, but it's, it's moving toward and arguing for obliterating all gender distinctions, right? And so that is something that is a cultural pressure uh, that can be felt. And this can exert pressure for the church to conform. You know, why can't women do these certain things in your church? When are you going to get on the right side of history? That, that's the kind of cultural pressure we may feel when we have a complementarian view. But it's important to understand that there is also a church culture that has been shaped by and reacts to that pressure. And, and that is something that affects us to various ways. There's a counterculture that in its desire to stand against one cultural pressure, we believe has gone too far and may say that it's better to be safe and just have men do everything. There are teachings out there that um, say that women are actually inferior in these things and um, elevate this to, to levels that just go far beyond scripture. There's a a cultural pressure that is being reacted to that creates another type of church culture that may be influencing us in ways we're not even aware of too. What's interesting is the secular cultures around us have sometimes done a better job of pointing out these problems than we within the church have seen ourselves. Um, In recent years, they have called out abuse and inconsistencies with our doctrine in how women have been treated uh, within the church. And there are horrible examples of that. Now, their solutions are lacking, right? And we would expect nothing different because they're not walking according um, to Scripture. 
But there are, it's important to see that there can be ways that culture is shaping us that we're not even aware of. And so we want to come to this topic aware that various cultures that we are a part of have had an influence on how we view this. And so a more helpful way of speaking about culture is something like considering what cultural pressures could be influencing how we approach this issue. I can tell you just flat out, the circles that I've been in, there is a lot of cultural pressure to just keep things how they are in a church and to not push on this issue. Um, all kinds of cultural pressure for that. Um, and, and we can, are there pressures in broader society, in the broader church world, in our Reformed Baptistic context, in our own families? What things are, are pushing us? And then what does scriptural say to those cultural pressures? What about them is right? And what about them needs correction? And that's what we're examining across the board. So we want to invite you into this conversation And this is how we want to pursue it. Aware of slippery slopes, aware of personal experience, aware of cultural pressures. All right. I will take a drink of water, and we will move to the back of your handout, right? Am I tracking? What I want to start doing with our our time remaining, and we're very aware of your time and, and thankful for it, is to begin talking about um, the biblical foundation of how we've come to viewing things this way. I want to say one thing just right from the get-go that I'm acutely aware of. In another uh, 18 minutes when I conclude, I doubt many of you will be satisfied yet because we're just starting and we're picking it up next week. So please know this is an ongoing thing but we just need to begin chipping away at it. So that's just to assuage my conscience. Um, Now, too often in this issue, we come with a question. What can or can't women do, (laughs) right? And we come to the scriptures and we pick out a few key passages that solve the issue for us. Some um, go to Deborah and say, look what Deborah did. Women can do this. Some go to women are not to have authority over a man, Case closed. Um, We need to make sure that we have a whole Bible approach to thinking about this. And so um, it's important to start at the beginning. And at the beginning, we see overwhelmingly what Scripture says, that men and women were created with equality in essence and importance. Um, That may sound like not a big deal to you, but there are teachings about this issue that don't say that. Um, And they definitely imply different things than that. But notice verses that are probably familiar to us, but I just want you to hear them in the context of what it says about men and women. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let me just say a few things from that. Men and women share the same human nature and are in the image and likeness of God, and are declared very good, later in Genesis 131. 
There is not one human nature for men and one for women. There is one human nature, and it's expressed in both male and female. And this means that man does not reflect the image of God any more than a woman, nor does a woman reflect the image of God any more than a man. Each reflect God's image both in their differences and similarities. You'll also notice there that they together are given the dominion mandate to work together in subduing the earth, and we could go into that even more. Then we come to Genesis 3, and there's a lot that could be said about this, but things had definitely changed. And what was once a relationship in marriage, remember it's between Adam and Eve here, of unity and oneness, now has these sinful dynamics between husband and wife. And there are two consequences in Genesis 3.16 for Eve's deception, pain in childbirth and conflict with her husband. One thing that's important to note is um, the ESV translates it, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, which is a very liberal translation of that, um, the, your desire will be for your husband. It's a difficult phrase. It could mean several things. We're not going to go into all of it right now. But what's really important to see about Genesis 3.16 is that the passage is not saying that because of the fall, there is now something in all women that makes them chafe against authority. First of all, the context of this is a husband-wife uh, context. It also doesn't say that the husband or men in general, that their role is to suppress this desire. Instead, the suppressing of it is actually seen as problematic, a sinful outworking of this passage. The ruling over there is seen as a negative thing. And so what we see is that what was designed as this beautiful unity between husband and wife will now experience conflict. And so what I want to say about that is this. This passage is not saying that now, from Genesis 3 onward, Women and all women are trying to usurp authority and men need to somehow now structurally and personally keep them from doing so. That's not what this passage is saying. The rest of scripture doesn't support it. That's a big thing and we could talk about it more, but I just want to throw that out there because it factors in. But then we go on to see the scripture then overwhelmingly shows the equality of men and women. Um, We unpack so much of this in here, and I I just invite you, if you have time, to, to read through this more thoroughly. But let me read a list, and you don't have to do this. I won't look and see who does and doesn't. But I'm going to read a list of boths, what Scripture says about both what men and women both do. And you could close your eyes and just hear this, and I think it helps us get a picture of what Scripture is positively affirming. Both are created with equal personhood and value before God and men. Both are created in God's likeness for fellowship and image and his image for dominion. Both are chosen in love before the foundation of the world. Both are converted, forgiven, adopted, and beloved children of God the Father. Both are granted eternal life. Both are filled with the Holy Spirit. Both are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Both are given the written word of God and invited to grow in grace and knowledge. Both are given the fruit of the Spirit to display and enjoy. Both have their consciences sanctified to know right and wrong. Both are heard by their heavenly Father through their prayer. Both are to love God and neighbor. Both are citizens of God's kingdom. Both are created for predestined good works. Both are essential members of the church family. 
Both are granted spiritual gifts, each being a blessing for the church and common good. Both are given the great commission to evangelize the lost and strengthen the church, including being used as an integral part in the plan of redemption throughout history. Both are responsible to live for the glory of God. Both are are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. Both are co-heirs with Christ. Both will be rewarded for their work. Both will see and experience a measure of Christ's glory now and will receive an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. All the scriptural citations are there, but do you hear how big the both is in scripture? Um, If we forget that, we come to passages in distorted ways. Now, this doesn't mean that men and women are commanded to do the same things in the worship service. And we also realize that in the Old Testament, um, God had men fulfill certain roles as kings and as priests, but we have to start with this solid understanding that both men and women have inherent dignity as those created in the image of God. Both are disciples and fellow workers for the Great Commission, and both are the same in essence, importance, spirituality, practicality, both in marriage and in the plan of redemption. And so what this means in summary, before we move on to the next point, that we can have no notion that there is something about women as women that limits their ability to lead. It's not an ontological thing, and it's not even a redemptive thing. Then we go on to see Jesus' ministry showed surprising countercultural involvement of women. As we come to the New Testament, Jesus radically pushes against what was culturally and religiously acceptable for women. Um, While still choosing to only call male apostles, which I do think is a significant thing, um, egalitarians will differ about that, um, he welcomed women into his life and ministry. He noticed women, dignified them, enjoyed their company, The gospel tells us that a group of women followed him and took care of him, provided for him financially. He received their hospitality, which a distinguished rabbi would never do. He had theological conversations with women. He included them in his teaching, which rabbis would never do. And they were the first witnesses to his resurrection, and they were the first to proclaim him as risen from the dead. There's a significance in a weight that Jesus is showing to women's involvement in this new covenant context. We could go on and on about all of this, but I'm just doing high level as we begin. And then the New Testament church shows robust co-laboring of men and women. This inclusion, this movement toward the inclusion of women into um, the life of the church, it continues in the New Testament, New Covenant church. Um, This is something that was foretold about the New Covenant. We think of Joel 2, where it's not just men, but it's women. And we just see this broadening aspect that um, is proclaimed all throughout Scripture. Galatians 3.28, which again, there's, there's more to be said about it, but it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we're not saying that that means there is no difference, but we see that movement toward commonality. And we could give you many examples of this. I mean, we think of Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, teaching Apollos. When we come to Romans 16, It's just fascinating. Paul mentions 26 names 
10 of those names are women. Paul knew them even though he hadn't ever been to Rome. How did Paul know these women? It seems like he knew them because of their participation in gospel mission. And the words that he uses about them describe involvement in that gospel mission together. Um, We don't think, as egalitarians do, that this meant that women filled every role in the church. There are still clear limitations on eldership in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, um, which we think pertains to preaching as well. But here's the bottom line. It may be surprising to us how much the New Testament envisions men and women co-laboring in ministry together. Um, So there's so much more that could be said, but I want to leave us with this, is it provocative? I don't know. Thing that gives me a lot of pause. Uh, And that is a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 and 5. Now, just so you know, we're going to talk more about this next week. Ryan's going to unpack this because um, there are three passages in particular that we'll be unpacking. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 6, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. The elders have um, researched those extensively, have a 60-page document of, of notes on those texts, and um, Ryan will be distilling those 60 pages into 60 minutes. So I can't wait to hear how fast he talks next week. But I, I would just like us to consider this. Um, it's a tricky passage. It deals with head coverings, but there's something that's very clear about it that I think a lot of times gets overlooked in the confusion of 1 Corinthians and when we hear things like prophecy and head coverings and these things that we say, whoa, what's going on there? Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies, the context of this passage, as we'll see next week, is the church gathered for worship service. That's what 1 Corinthians 11, and as it continues on, is regulating. In the context of this worship service, every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. So men are praying and prophesying. But every wife, which the ESV is the only translation that takes that as wife, it it probably just should be woman, but it doesn't matter for the sake of this point. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, before anyone goes out and shaves their head or something like that, the point that I just want us to see there is this. What if we came to this passage asking, what does Paul expect to be hearing when he comes to a gathered worship service of the church? Part of what we would say is Paul expects that he is hearing men praying and prophesying, and there's ways to do that that are appropriate that he'll talk about. And he's also saying he expects to hear women praying and prophesying when the church gathers for worship. Now, what about head coverings? What about prophecy? We can talk about those things. But when we kind of just step back and think about it for a moment, it might push against some of what we might think Paul would expect to hear in a worship service. Um, And I, I want to leave you with that, to just be mulling over that and thinking about that question as we prepare to come back next week, because where we'll go from here, um, you know, we can have all kinds of questions of, of what that means, but don't miss this overwhelming emphasis of Scripture on men and women as co laborers together 
And then even this evidence of the fact that hearing their voices together in the worship service in things like prophecy and prayer is something that Paul expected. And then we come to the question, well, what is it that isn't to be done? Um, And there are passages that in some ways have a limiting function. And in a lot of ways, it's a limiting function for both men and women. Um, And and we'll see that as, as Ryan unpacks that. And then once we look at those more limiting passages, then we talk through these overall principles of what this means for our practice here at GBC, um, which we've already kind of laid out things that we're uh, thinking about with that. So conclusion. Thank you. Thank you for coming, for joining us in this conversation, for committing to think about this, to pray about it, to work through it. I'd like to close with this, though. We are praying as elders that we would love you well in this process. We know that this is not easy. Uh, It's not easy for us either. It would actually be a lot easier to just continue as things are and enjoy Pastoral Appreciation Month without doing teachings like this. (laughs) That's what October is. Kind of funny. Um, It would be much easier to do that. We're not doing that because we love you and we love God's word and we're convinced that this is what God's word says and that it will be better for us to walk this out together. So we are praying that we will love you well as you hear this, as it's jarring, as you respond, as you question, as we dialogue, um, that it would be glorifying to God. We're also praying that you would love us in the process I can tell you how you can love the elders in this process. That you could assume that we are men who are committed to the word of God and the heart and the diligence with which we study the scriptures that you hear every Sunday in our preaching and teaching is every bit as much what's driving this as anything else we do in church. You may not agree. You may have questions. We may have things to discuss. But if we believe, if we think of you as mature brothers and sisters whom we want to love, and if you think of us as the same, um, then this will be great. Not easy, but great and beautiful. And so that's our prayer. Um, and uh, I think that's what's in my notes. So let me uh, close praying that uh, together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us and that you have saved us and revealed that salvation and given us your word and that you've orchestrated the church gathering together and worshiping in in such a way that puts on display the, the foolishness of the gospel and the wonder of your salvation and the mystery of your plan because none of us would have thought up any of this of how these things should work. So we pray that you would humble us as we walk through this journey. We pray that you would help us to love you and love each other in the process. Help us to be open to your Spirit's leading as we study your word. And we ask for your help as we get to spend time in fellowship together as people who have been brought together by your sovereign plan for this time and this place to be members of the same local body and uh, to be built up into Christ who is our head. Help us as we seek to do that in the time that remains here this evening, uh, as we go from here, and as we gather again, Lord willing, next week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.